You're listening to Locked On Cavaliers, your daily look at the Cleveland Cavaliers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to Locked on Cavaliers, your daily look at the Cleveland Cavaliers. I am Chris Manning, your host from ForTheSword.com, SB Nation's Cleveland Cavaliers site. Uh, today's show is a look at a couple different things. First off, you're going to hear from John Corrales. He is going to be talking about Cavs Celtics with me, uh, what the Cavs are going to get into on Friday, and then you'll hear at the end of the show two segments with Trevor Magnotti, one on Nazir Little. One on the Maui Invitational, and then we're going to end the show on those kind of notes. We're going to do our double draft Friday after not doing it last week and talk about Cavs Celtics. Uh, if you want to hear more about the Kyle Corver trade, please go to fearthesword.com. we got a whole bunch of stuff up there. I wrote a piece about uh, why this is a sign that the Cavs are really starting to restock what they are uh, trying to get. They are restocking their assets. They are trying to get draft picks again. This is the signal of what they're really trying to do. Additionally, we have a big piece by Ryan Morton going up on the state of the cap sheet and what this, how the, this trade could set up even more trades. So there's a whole bunch of stuff of it for this order right now. Go check it all out. You're going to learn a lot from reading it. Uh, and I think you'll learn a lot from today's podcast. On the way into talking with John, you're going to actually hear what Kyrie Irving had to say about the Cavs. And then you'll hear from John. Thanks to John for providing that audio as he was at Celtics shoot-around or media availability on Thursday the 29th. Uh, again, follow Locked on Cavs on iTunes, Stitcher, Megaphone, wherever you listen to your podcast. And please find leave a five-star rating review. That's the best way to support the show. And if you want to find me on Twitter and Facebook at the CWM Rights, the pod is on Twitter and Facebook at Locked on Cavs. So uh, here's Kyrie Irving, then me and John Corrales, and then me and Trevor Magnani. We will talk to you again tomorrow. So have a great day. Have a great time watching Cavs Celtics. And you'll have be Saturday morning if you're out running errands. You'll have a recap of that game in your feeds ahead of Cavs Raptors. Talk to you then. Cheers. Um, they're they're very you know when they're uh, in a winning groove, uh, when they're in rhythm, they're they're uh, you know they're a totally different team. Um, you know they, they have very uh, efficient scores uh, that play within the mid range as well as out to the three point line. Um, you know obviously with Tristan just moving around and setting great screens for those guys, getting them open and creating opportunities, rolling to the lane. So. Just puts a lot of pressure on our on, on the defense when you have you know a guard like Colin Sexton able to draw the defense, um, you know be efficient in the mid range. Jordan Clarkson has no conscience in any shots that he shoots, so um, you just got to be aware for the just random basketball as well as uh, some structure. And joining me now is John Corrales. He is the host, one of the hosts over at the Locked On Celtics podcast. John, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. How you doing? I'm doing good. So let's this Boston team. I don't know how if they've met. Just I'm curious, have they met your expectations for this year? I would guess no. And just what have what has been the story of this group so far this year? Oh God, no, 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 (laughs) (laughs) no, no. We we came in thinking these guys were Warriors East, man. We were feeling ourselves this season, but uh, they uh, the only part of the Warriors that we got was that uh, that dysfunction. But uh, no, I think the biggest problem with the Celtics this season uh, is a struggle to kind of integrate everybody. um, And how the best way to put it, uh, it's harder than we thought to get everybody on the same page. It's harder than we thought for the Celtics to kind of 
reintroduce Kyrie Irving and reintroduce Gordon Hayward because they had so much success last season without those two guys made that deep playoff run. And you had a few guys, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Terry Rozier in particular, who were part of this amazing run where they were, they suddenly darlings of the NBA and people just, wow, Terry Rozier, he's a starting caliber point guard and Jason Tatum, he's a future star in the making and Jalen Brown, man, this guy's like a Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard type. Like people were really, really trying, like feeling these guys. And so they come into this season having had a summer where Terry Rozier got a Puma deal and Jason Tatum worked out with his hero, Kobe Bryant and Jalen Brown's working out with T-Mac and, and these guys are are really like, okay, we're ready to take these these big steps. And we were looking for them to take big steps, except Kyrie Irving is Kyrie Irving, and Gordon Hayward is eventually, we hope, going to be Gordon Hayward. And with that injury that he suffered, it's been tougher to get him up to speed. And what that really ended up taking away for the Celtics was a clear, clear number two guy. And the Jason Tatum that we got this year is not the same Jason Tatum as last year. He's better in a lot of ways. He also last season deferred a lot. And this season, he's not deferring. He's searching out his own offense. Jalen Brown is searching out his own offense. Terry Rozier is searching out his own offense. And last year, they weren't doing that as much. So the first quarter of the season has been a lot of these guys trying to all search out their own roles. And the Celtics really work best when everybody's kind of working together. And and we had a lot of guys kind of working individually and that's led to a lot of frustration. And I think when, when guys are kind of going off with some different goals in mind, they, they tend to slack in some of the finer details. And uh, that's where you get to the point where starting Marcus Smart and Marcus Morris was so successful against the Pelicans because it took away a couple of those guys that needed the offense and it inserted two guys who were just pure energy, do the right thing kind of guys. And suddenly a lot of things snapped into focus. So Celtics really have struggled a lot getting all of these guys together, working together under the same common goal. It's not so crazy that they've gone on half gone off half cocked and will never come back. It's just some guys have to understand that what they've been trying to do isn't working and it's just bringing them back slowly into the fold of what really works best for the Celtics. So when you look at who has actually stood out, um, Kyrie has been the guy when I watch, I'm just kind of still like, like, right. Kyrie's really, really good. And it, we have to accept that. And Hayward's obviously well, Marcus Morris has been great, but um, looking at just Kyrie, what has he been this year? And is, has he, has there been things where he hasn't maybe met your expectations in a way you're expecting him to? I think Kyrie's been great this year. Um, he's he's been playing much better defense than I ever would have expected. I just want to say I, real quick that like everyone who like told Cavs fans when Kyrie was with the Cavs that he could never like be a good defender like just has, just saying this was always what we had hoped for him. I think it was always like the, the <laughs> envisioning of what he was going to be. So yeah, he's I, I just looked it up. I just wrote a quick piece on on Red's Army where he's uh, I think. Si- seventh eighth in the nba in steals and seventh in deflections so and you know steals are are such a 
a weird stat that you you don't you're not always a good defender when you get a lot of steals. But and, and look, I'm never going to con- confuse Kyrie Irving for an all defensive player. But at the same time, I thought he was coming in like Isaiah Thomas type negative, and he's not. He's not been that. He's been active and mostly um, decent defensively a couple of games where he's gotten frustrated and he kind of slacked defensively and that really, really showed. But aside from a couple of those games, he's been, he's been really good defensively. I think his passing has been pretty good. He's getting a bunch of double doubles. He's he's the assist numbers look good. Um, I was calculating uh, his, his overall passing just assists and potential assists. And, and really he's, He's he's very productive with his passing and his scoring. I mean, the only thing that I would say, and I guess this comes with the territory with Kyrie, is every once in a while he go he tries to get into that duel. And there was uh, I forget which game where maybe it's the Dallas game where he he just didn't have it, and he he came down it was really, really, really forcing the hero ball. And on occasion it's been, that's been less than ideal, but at the same time, on occasion, it's been great. Like it won us the Toronto game. So I, I, I can't complain too much because I think you don't get the Toronto game without the occasional Dallas game. So we're kind of wrapping up on this. What do you, what is something you're looking forward to seeing what Boston does on Friday against the Cavs? And secondly, no Jalen Brown and no Al Horford, if I'm correct there. What does not having those two guys in the lineup mean for Boston on Friday? Well, that is correct. No, neither of those guys are playing. Uh, I think, well, they, they just played without Jalen. So it, it thins out the bench. But the Celtics are coming off of three days uh, off. They've got a back-to-back, and then they got like four days off. It's a weird schedule right now. But they, um, without without Jalen, it really just keeps the focus on this starting lineup with Marcus, the two Marcuses in there. Without Horford, they'll start Baines, and then after that, we'll just that means what we're going to see is a lot of Daniel Tice and maybe some Robert Williams, and and we'll the hope for me is that these guys come out with the same focus that they came out with against the Pelicans. It's easy to come out with a lot of focus when you're facing Anthony Davis, Drew Holiday, Miritich is dropping bombs on you. It's another to look at the standings and see the, the Cavs clearly rebuilding and say, come out with that same exact focus, uh, which is dogged them. Focus has dogged them. So if they come out with these two guys in the starting lineup and they and they come out to a huge lead again, then you know you've got something there with the focus and the energy. If they don't, then it's the same old problem for the Celtics. I would expect Boston probably wins that game. That is just my guess based on just where the Cavs are at. And I think if you're a if you're a Celtics one listening to this, I think it's a good um, opportunity. I think for Boston to probably get back into a flow against a Cavs team that is um, not great. John, just from afar, what do you? I, and we'll, we're going to talk about this. People can listen to more of us talking over on Lockdown Celtics as well, but. What's just something from afar that has interested you, or at least like, interested is probably too strong a word because this is a bad team, but has anything like stood out to you when you've evaluated the Cavs from afar? Uh, you know, I'm really curious about the progression of Colin Sexton. I mean, he's had he's had a good stretch recently, but, you know, there there were some issues with him before uh, from, from what I've seen. Uh, I know he had uh, some problems, I guess, with J.R. Smith, but now that J.R. Is, is gone, 
I'm just kind of curious to see exactly how he he handles himself running the team uh, against a defense like the Celtics. But I, I think it's for the Cavs. The thing I'm most interested in is not even necessarily from game to game. So yeah, Sexton. Uh, I don't know how much to make of the the Burks trade. I don't know that they're even looking to to evaluate him and keep him long term. But who knows? But it's it's more the young guys and, and to see how they're rebuilding. And again, with the Cavs, I'm mostly curious on how they plan on kind of restocking everything that they gave up in the LeBron era. I mean, that's that's step one. And I think it's it's going to be a little bit of a longer rebuild. And I'm I'm mostly curious to see if they hit with the pick on Sexton and then did what what do they do next? It's all about Zion. That's what that's what it is. It's getting Zion Williamson in the man, draft. Man, if you get Zion, man, that dude is special, man. Yeah. I've never seen a prospect like that. So no, that's what good the Cavs, luck. That's what the Cavs are hoping for is just someone good. But you can find John on Twitter at RedsArmy underscore John. You can read him on the Lockdown Celtics podcast, the Lockdown NBA podcast, Boston.com, and Reds Army. John, thanks so much. You got it, man. Joining me now is Trevor Magnani from Fear the Sword and the Step Back at the Fear the Sword. He does our weekly draft guide as well as our big draft breakdowns. Uh, last week, we talked about Zion Williamson. This week, we're talking about another guy in Tobacco Road. It is Nazir Little from North Carolina. He is a 6'6 forward. He is born in 2000, which makes me feel super old as someone born in the early 90s. But Trevor, how's it going? Good. Glad to be back. Glad to be talking about someone who's not on Duke for once. Yeah, let me ask you this. Just say, as someone who writes about the draft, writes about prospects a lot, um, writes has an affinity for European prospects. Shouts to Jetty Osman because you were on that train before anybody else. Is it like sometimes kind of not as fun? I, I get, and for that's a weird way to put it, I guess. But to just have to be focused so much on on one team instead of like seeing guys in more individual, isolated circumstances, or is it sort of nice to just like I can turn on this Duke game and I get to see these three potential top three picks all at once? You know, I, th- I think it goes a little bit of both ways. I think it's nice because you have four guys actually on Duke when you count Trey Jones, who to me through three games looks like either the best or second best point guard in this class, depending on your feelings on Darius Garland of Vanderbilt. I, it's nice to be able to kind of make appointment viewing. I mean, it's definitely nice for writing my watch jack, watch guides because I know that I'm going to put every Duke game in there and I'm going to call it a day and I don't have to offer much analysis there or any reasoning for why it's there. They have four, four NBA prospects and four likely lottery picks. Go watch them. Um, but I do get a little bit annoyed. You know, it gets monotonous. It's, it's just the fact that it's Duke. You know, I am – firmly on the record with a lot of Duke's past NBA draft guys. Uh, Coach K does not always use them in the, in the correct met, uh, role, does not always use them in the most ideal way. I think we're seeing that a little bit with RJ Barrett this year. He's not being used a hundred percent optimally. I think that, I think that it's nice to have all those guys in one place. It's nice to have that appointment viewing feeling because you never really get that in college basketball from an NBA fan perspective. But at the same time, it'd be really nice if this was all happening at Kentucky with a team or on a team that's at least a little bit more watchable than a lot of the stuff that Duke does. So let's talk about a little. What, what, what were your expectations coming in and through the small sample size right now? What, what have you seen from him in his first few games with North Carolina? 
So I was pretty high on Whittle coming into the season. I really enjoyed what I saw from him at the high school level, and I was really excited about what he could become at the college and potentially in the NBA level long term. I'm still excited about what he brings to the table as a potential NBA player because he has all of the tools to be a three-level scorer that's also a high-level defender at the wing in the NBA. So he is probably the most complete prospect, even a little bit more than R.J. Barrett, I would I would say, in terms of kind of checking all boxes on what I look for as a, as a wing prospect when I'm trying to draft a potential core piece. So I was pretty excited about that. Moving into the college game, though, it looks like it's been a little bit of a tough transition. You know, he's not starting for North Carolina. Um He's really had some off moments, and he's also had some signs of brilliance so far. So, you know, he hasn't been a complete disaster. But I, th- I think that I've soured a little bit on, on what I've seen just because he really looks like he's a little bit more of a work in progress than I, than I was hoping, you know, with his hot end to his high school senior season. I mean, this was a guy who was – originally rated in the 20s in the recruiting rankings going into 2018 and then rose up into the top five late because he was putting on such a show. And now we're seeing a little bit more of why he started off down at that lower level as opposed to being on the level of Barrett or Williamson from the beginning. So what what if you, if you're looking at him in terms of a guy that's maybe that's somewhere in the top five-ish range, what, what about him could propel him to being in the conversation of a top three pick to – to maybe being ahead of, of Barrett. And I kind of want to ask about him and Barrett as side-by-side comps because they are going to kind of play this roughly the same wingy position in the NBA. But like, what, what, would, what, what would push him continuing to rise up, getting him into that top? Like, what could he do at UNC this year that would propel him to make him just like a lock for the top three, top four picks? Well, I think the big thing that he brings is he is – the most complete off the dribble shooter in this class. You know, he has such an advanced skill set in terms of the ways that he creates separation one on one and the ways that he's able to get himself in positions to get good shots off. Um, he has probably the best footwork of anyone that I've seen in this class in terms of. Uh, coming around around a screen and trying to break someone down one-on-one and getting into a step-back jumper or accelerating to the rim out of that, he ha- he has great ability to create his own shot. And I think that that's what is going to potentially make him very special. I think his jumper mechanics are a little bit of a work in progress, which is why that didn't really translate early on in his high school career. But we're seeing that now at North Carolina. You know, he can, at the end of a shot clock, get the ball, make two dribble moves, and get an open shot pretty reliably. And I think that that's something that's going to project well to the next level. I think also his defense is something that is good, that is going to be – um, that is going to be really nice for that next level too. You know, he's got very good size. You know, he's he's very strong for his size. He's six seven, has a seven two wingspan, so he's nice and long. He's he's really strong as well. I think that you can potentially play him up his position. You can play him as maybe a small ball four in some really wacky lineup as we move on in the NBA and we continue to get smaller and smaller. I think that's on the table for him um, because because of his size. 
he hasn't exactly put it all together on the defensive end. He's been a really disappointing on that end to me so far, just because he doesn't really look like he understands North Carolina's scheme yet. But I think that the potential is still there for him to be a very, very good defender in the league. And when you put his potential or that potential with his shot making ability off the dribble, that's kind of what you want as as a number one scorer. Let's say it's the, the, the Cavs end up with him, and it's him, Sexton, and Jetty as sort of their three perimeter young guys. How does he fit with with those two guys as a as as as, I, as based on what kind of what you're saying, and based on where they would draft him as maybe the leader of that group? Where where would he fit with those two? Well, I think it's I think it's potentially a little bit of a clunky fit just because of what we've seen from North, him at North Carolina this year. I really want to see him be able to fit more within the team offense. Um, you know, he he's done a good job of deferring. He's he's a very strong cutter, so that's been nice. But I really haven't seen the playmaking that I've that I've wanted that we've definitely seen from Barrett and Reddish, the two guys the two guys that I would put around him. I think that. I want to see him do that a little bit more because if you've got Sexton and Little in a backcourt together and you've or and you've got both of those guys who are billed as shot makers and then you throw Osman on top, a guy who you just spent all summer really trying to foster that off the dribble creation from I think that's a little bit of a clunky fit because I think all three of those guys are going to try to battle for the ball a little bit, even even though, you know, their skill sets could be pretty complimentary. I think that Whittle could be a really good uh, spot-up shooter in the NBA and could be a really nice secondary creator. We know that that's probably what Osmond's headed at, headed to. And I, I think that that creates a little bit of a weird situation where you have probably three secondary creators as the wings who are all trying to function as primary creators. And that gets a little bit weird when you have that set, when you have that setup, that is a recipe for losing a lot of games because your offense isn't efficient and doesn't operate well to get everybody else involved. So I'm a little bit skeptical of the fit of little right now on this team. And especially within that context next to Sexton. Um, But that's not to say that that could change, you know, if he finds himself and kind of, finds a way to get integrated into this North Carolina offense a little bit better, I would feel a little bit better about him doing the same thing at the NBA level right now. Last question I have before, and I number one, this basically just is making me want to see all of the Duke-North Carolina games this year. I feel like those are going to be appointment television, if they, and they obviously are usually a, a great college game already, but it feels like especially important this year. If, if on your on, In your personal rankings – is there a sizable gap between where Barrett is and where Reddish is and where Little is right now? I think that there is a developing gap between where Barrett and Little are. I have them very close to start the season, and I still have them pretty close. You know, I'm not ready to put Barrett on a tier of his own underneath underneath Williams or equal to or under just underneath Williamson yet. I think that still two through four is all very or two through five is all very fluid because I'll throw bowl bowl in there too. You know, he's looked pretty, he's looked pretty good early on and I still have him as a firm member of my top five. So I think that I would probably go 
Barrett and Barrett and Little very close, and then a very small gap in reddish underneath, and then a very small gap, and then Bolt underneath. I think that there's still a lot of fluidity between those four, and that's going to sort itself out probably over the next month for me. I think we're going to really be able to see at least one of these guys start to emerge as the clear number two guy, and maybe uh, someone emerges the clear number three guy. But that right now that hasn't happened. You know, I'm honestly a little bit more ready to make little versus reddish a conversation more so than I am Barrett versus little just because of how good reddish has looked and how good Barrett has looked and how, and that's changed things a little bit to where, you know, I'm less comfortable comparing RJ and Nasir little and I'm more comfortable comparing little and reddish because I think those two guys are closer in value. I think that's fair. Um, it's going to be a long season. We're going to get a lot of chance to evaluate all of these guys and everyone. We're going to come down the list, and we're going to do this and every Friday. Locked on Cavs will have a draft prospect breakdown. I, for one, am very excited to get back to doing this. I We obviously did not do very much of this when LeBron was with the Cavs, and we had to evaluate like Kay Felder, and it wasn't very much fun. But we're back evaluating some of these really interesting guys. Trevor's going to be with us just about every week, if not every week, hopefully. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Illegal Screens. You can read his writing at Through the Sword and the Step Back. And Trevor, uh, we're going to now talk about the Maui Invitational. Gonzaga beat Duke to win that tournament. And we're not surprisingly going to talk about the Duke players in that game. And we're going to start with the guy that we've maybe talked the least about so far. And that's RJ Barrett. Um, when I know when you and I were prepping to talk about the Maui Invitational, the thing you wanted to talk about with RJ Barrett was his defense in this tournament. So when you're watching him here, what, uh, what, what stood out to you in terms of him as a defender? Well, I think the big thing that we took away from the Maui Invitational and have really taken away from him throughout this season, this was just kind of the best example of that, was his on-ball defense right now is not where it needs to be if he's going to be the top-level prospect that he's being billed as. You know, he's been scoring at an outrageous clip, and he's been performing pretty well on the offensive end and is driving Duke's off offense for long stretches pretty much any time he's out on the floor. But his reaction time and his technique when doing simple things on the defensive end is a little bit of an issue right now. There were several times throughout the Auburn game and the Gonzaga game in particular where he would be charged with closing out on a shooter as Gonzaga was moving the ball against Duke. And rather than closing out straight on on a shooter, he would close out direct deliberately to one side, usually trying to force the guy to go left on. There were a couple of times where I tried to do that to a couple of the Gonzaga guards uh, early in the first half and it resulted in them getting wide open layups because rather than shading to one side to prevent that player from going left, he completely almost goes by the offensive player and just allows him a free lane to the hoop. It's a little bit of a matador defense that he that he's been showing and that was really on display in the Gonzaga game and I think that that is a big issue that we're seeing is he really doesn't have the fundamental technique down that we need to see from him to even survive on the NBA level defensively on the perimeter I mean these are simple things that he's missing he's missing that he needs to 
just shade a little bit to one side in order to force a player to their offhand. He doesn't need to go directly by them. He's missing rotations off the ball, and he's not really showing the lateral quickness that you like to see from a player who we know has such good footwork on the offensive end to be able to stay in front of guys on the perimeter. So those are some big issues that I'm seeing with Barrett that were on display in the Maui tournament. And I'm really going to be looking to see if he can develop on and improve on as, as we go in enter conference season. So in terms of him as a prospect, what, what what does that raise like red flags for you in terms of like how high you draft him or where he falls on your board? Does it does it like give you some like and I, I hate using this because it's kind of a lazy comp, but like is it like Andrew Wiggins vibes like at all? Like is that like is that this kind of thing concerning for him is, is what he's going to be as a guy who's probably going to go in the top three of this draft? Well, I think that's what makes it so hard is that on one hand, yeah, there are some signs that if he doesn't improve on this, he's going to be that Andrew Wiggins type defender where there are just missed efforts and missed reads. And it doesn't really look like he has a clue what to do when he is trying to defend. And those situations are very rare. But at the same time, many, many college wings are pretty bad fundamentally on defense, especially these high volume scorers who have never really had to work very hard within a team defense situation. And this is really their first time where they're having to do that. They're on a team where that is actually being preached and they aren't just given the green light to do whatever they want on defense and with the knowledge that they're going to be carrying the offensive load and dominating on that end. So I really take everything that I see from these top level guys, these top five uh, pick players. You know, I did the same thing with Marvin Bagley, same thing with uh, two years ago. There were guys where I just don't see that being as big of an issue just because it is something that these guys progress with as they get a little bit more experience. So he's kind of fitting into a little bit of a gray area here. You know, we're not seeing the positive signs that we're seeing maybe with a Nasir Whittle or a Cam Reddish, guys who also have defensive issues but are showing much more positive strides on the defensive end. But I still think that there's plenty of room for him to develop and there's plenty of natural development that's going to occur with him or at least has the potential to. So that's just going to be a thing that is kind of going to be hanging over him until he gets into the NBA or shows significant improvement if that comes this year is – we're just not going to know if he's if this is a technique thing, if this is a scheme issue, or if this is more of an effort thing that is going to continue to dog him as he grows as a player. Let's flip to Zion, who um, was still still making big big highlight plays all the time for this Duke team. But the the game that you mentioned that stood out to you more than against Aggie, and where basically everyone looked very very tired in that game was the Auburn game. So when you watch him against Auburn, what, what were you really seeing there that, that jumped out at you when you're watching a player who seems to like jump off the screen all the time? Well, in the first half, it really seemed like Williamson struggled with the length of Auburn. And I think that that's something that we were all worried about with him coming into the year was he's a guy who for all of his physical gifts and all of his athletic talent, he's still 
somewhere between six five and six seven, depending on what measurements you're you're going off of. And he doesn't have that freakish wingspan that a guy like Whittle does, uh, where Whittle's at about seven two. Um, Williamson's wingspan is a, is a little bit smaller, more around seven foot, and that does make a difference with the position that they play. So it really seemed like he was getting cut off from the rim a little bit more. In particular, he really struggled with double teams. Auburn was throwing two defenders at him routinely in the in the first half of that game, and he really struggled to read that situation and make uh, the right play in that in that context. And he had a few tur- uh, turnovers off of that, and a few bad passes that Duke ended up recovering, but still weren't the. It seems like he panics a little bit when he deals with a lot of length still, and he's not really getting the same clean finishes that we would like to see. You know, for all the things that we that we see with him and all all of the nice highlights and the high efficiency finishing numbers that we see, he's still a guy who really relies on his left hand to finish. It's his, it's his dominant hand, and he really doesn't use his right as as much as you would like or even attempt shots there and he'll deliberately go out of his way to try to get to that left hand he's talented enough that he can do that but against that length he really had a tougher time with that and that's going to be interesting because moving forward because that brings questions about how he's going to perform against teams like the bucks or like the raptors who have a ton of length that they're going to be able to throw at him are going to send multiple defenders at him that have these seven foot seven foot two wingspans and how is he going to be able to work his way out of that as a primary or secondary option so it's not too big of a problem mainly because he does or he still was very productive in that game and he still found ways to impact it and his team ended up still winning comfortably even though they got a really good test in that game but that is a area where I thought we might have a weakness with Williamson heading into the year and it looks like that's going to continue to be something that he's going to struggle with is how does he finish against these teams that have a ton of length and that are going to put defenses out on the floor that are going to deliberately wall him off against the paint in the biggest example of that is I'm really interested now in how he's going to perform against Syracuse because he's going to get some opportunities to get into that teeth of that deep that two three zone and that defense, while for all of its faults, is really good at walling off the paint, paint against guys who can't finish against length. So really interested to see how he's going to perform there. Lastly, well, so let's look at Cam Reddish. We have not dove deep on him yet. We're going to eventually get to him at some point, I think. But how did he fit in among what, what you saw from Zion and R.J. Barrett in Maui? I thought he was probably the most consistent of the three. You know, Barrett had his scoring numbers, which which were great. And Williamson had pretty good impact in the San Diego State game and the Gonzaga game. Um, struggled a little bit in the Auburn game. Reddish, I think, has kind of settled in as a nice consistent third guy for Duke. Um, you know, he's he's got a very specific role on this team and he performs it very well. He's their secondary playmaker who's going to be attacking downhill off pick and rolls set up by Trey Jones and RJ Barrett. And he's going to be 
kind of this off ball shooter who's just going to pull the trigger as soon as he catches the ball. And he's been pretty good at that so far. His shooting has been really nice to see. I'm, I re- really feel confident about that projecting, especially based off of what I saw in high school and how that's been supplemented by his catch and shoot numbers and his ability to, uh, or to pull the trigger against contests at the college level. So I think that that's been that's been really nice. However, I do think he's a little bit limited in what he's going to be able to do. And that does put him a little a step behind the other two. You know, we have a good picture of what R.J. Barrett is going to be able to do as an isolation scorer. We have a great picture of what Zion Williamson potentially could become because of the diversity of what he's been able to provide to Duke on the floor. We really only have Reddish in this specific context where he's not really taking those one-on-five creation options that we see from Barrett, and he's not really getting a lot of these finishing looks that Williamson is. So I'm really interested to see how his role evolves moving forward, if it's going to change from this or if he's just going to continue to stay in this context that makes him look really good at what because it plays to what he's good at, but doesn't really explore all of the different avenues that he could grow as a player. Um so that's just one thing that I'm looking forward to um, facing forward out of the Maui Invitational with Reddish is we know what he's good at at this point. We know that he's really good for this role. I want to see what he can do branching out of that to really take that next step and really push from this guy who has solidified himself probably as the top four pick in this draft to – or at least at this point, to potentially pushing past Barrett or potentially pushing past Little to become, you know, the number two, number three guy in the class. Let's work on this. Any other prospect takes you have coming out of Maui or just in general right now? Anything you've learned in the last week that that just really feels like just even if it's small, just something that's popped out to you? Yeah, a couple of things from the from the Maui Invitational. Really impressed with Brandon Clark, who is a transfer for Gonzaga. Um, came comes over from San Jose State, a really small school, and this is his first real chance at, at a major college program, and he's performed pretty well. I like him as maybe a late first-round wing. There's a lot of really good three, four types that are really, really have a diverse skill set, really are going to be able to help in multiple ways, I think, at the NBA level, and Clark has been has been one of them. Grant Williams of Tennessee, who played in the NIT tip-off against Kansas and helped Tennessee give them a really good game against against Kansas. I think that he's another one of those guys. There are a lot of guys that I like in that kind of valuable 3-4 combo role, and um, I was really impressed by Clark out of there. Um, Other than that, for the Maui Invitational, Jalen McDaniels of San Diego State looked looked pretty well. Um, Io DeSumo, who's one of my favorite guards in this class, a point guard from Illinois, he kind of disappointed in that tournament. So I'm hoping that he can kind of turn things around as they get going in conference play. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a good tournament to get a good look at some of those late first, early second round guys that I've been keeping an eye on. Um, my only other real t- – hot take I would say at this point is you know Darius Garland of Vanderbilt he just got hurt so his stock is dropping a little bit but he looked like a solid potential top 10 pick I've been diving in deep on him as well as Kobe White for North Carolina um 
basically the two point guards who are going to be going in the back half of the top 10. And I'm looking at those two specifically right now. And I'm thinking that I'm pretty solidly picking white ahead of Garland at this point, which kind of goes against the grain a little bit. So that's kind of my big hot take that I'm forming um, as, as we go along early in the season is I think that my top point guard picks are kind of zagging where the rest of the, of the draft community is zigging a little bit. You can find Trevor's writing at Through the Sword and the Step Back, and you can find him on Twitter at Illegal Screen. Trevor, thanks so much. Yep, thanks for having me.